From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. You're listening to a special holiday edition of the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, travelers in China made nearly 400 million domestic trips in the first three days of the ongoing holiday period. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's appeared in a New York courtroom for the start of a civil trial against him. And China and Brazil have completed their first transaction using local currencies instead of U.S. dollars. In the second half of the program, we have more episodes of our Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. Now checking the day's top stories. Uh, travelers in China made 395 million domestic trips during the first three days of the Mid-Autumn Festival and National Day holiday, rising 76% from a year ago. Domestic tourism revenues over this three-day period also rose by more than 125% to 342 billion yuan, and that's close to $47 billion. The Ministry of Commerce says retail sales in major cities more than doubled during those three days. Box office tickets sales have exceeded 1.6 billion yuan since the start of the eight-day holiday. On Monday, recorded more than 53 million passenger trips. That was a 56% increase. The Chinese capital is welcoming tourists from across the country with art performances and exhibitions. This has become a driver for the economy. Zheng Chunying has more. According to the government officials, the city scenic areas received more than 6.8 million visitors during the first three days of the ongoing national holiday, um, up more than 60 percent year on year. And the city has, um, as far as I know, organized more than 2,000 cultural activities for visitors, including, you know, several uh, classic and uh, popular dramas and operas, and also public venues such as museums have also uh, made some adjustment to meet the increasing demand during the holiday, with many expanding their visitor uh, capacities, extending their opening hours, and implementing some other uh, experiences optimization measures. Uh, during the period, the major scenic areas in the Chinese capital recorded a total revenue of over 418 million yuan, and that is more than 58 million U.S. dollars, and a total of 100 key enterprises uh, monitored by the Municipal Commerce Bureau have reported a total sales volume of over 3.8 billion yuan, and that is up more than uh, 18% year-on-year. And uh, local authorities have also worked together to fuel the holiday economy, hosting various cultural activities and launching attractive tourist routes as well. That was Zheng Chunying on tourism in Beijing during the National Day holiday. Among the increasing number of people traveling during the Golden Week, many Hong Kong residents are heading to the mainland. Uh, Tung Bo spoke with one content creator from Hong Kong who shares her views on the trend. Oh, hello! Hey! 
another day trip to Shenzhen. This is Chiao Chen's second visit to the neighboring city of Hong Kong in a week. New business models and brands in Shenzhen have drawn her to spend weekends and holidays here. What do you usually do in Shenzhen?、Uh, most of the time, I just come back to、uh, Shenzhen, go do some shopping,、uh-huh. and have a good meal with my friends. When I come come back in Shenzhen, and I would like to go to with my friend to have a bubble tea. Hello, hi, Cherry. As a Hong Kong-based short video influencer, Cherry has been making online content and sharing her life in Hong Kong since 2019. She says social media has played an important role in boosting the trend of visiting the mainland. Some people would like to share the、uh, important information about our Shenzhen's life. So. The young people will see this information, and they feel, wow, Shenzhen is really close to Hong Kong, and maybe we can go back to Shenzhen for shopping and have a meal, and it's really convenient. Since customs clearance resumed between the two places at the beginning of the year, the number of Hong Kong residents traveling north to the mainland has also increased, and a considerable proportion of them are going to mainland cities, including Shenzhen, for day trips or slightly longer. After Fujian Port resumed customs clearance in January, passenger flows continued to grow, with the average daily passenger flow in August reaching 140,000, exceeding the average daily flow in the same period in 2019. From January to August, Fujian Port inspected over 24 million inbound and outbound passengers, among which more than 16 million were Hong Kong passengers. For Cherry and many other Hong Kong residents. Services on the mainland are cost-effective. The mainland has also launched supportive policies in areas such as transport infrastructure and electronic payments, making it more convenient for Hong Kong residents to spend their money on the mainland. That was Tung Bo reporting from Shenzhen. Over to Hangzhou now, and China's defeated South Korea to win the team event in women's go at the Asian Games. Chinese athletes also picked up gold medals in competitions, including the one-meter springboard, kayak, and canoe. With more action,、uh, Yang Guang joins us now. On the line from Hangzhou.、Uh, good evening,、uh, Yang Guang. And first up, now one of the、uh, the most anticipated matches on Tuesday was the men's basketball quarterfinal between China and South Korea. So、uh, please, first, tell us more about that game.、Uh, evening, Shane. It was a straightforward win for China from the very beginning. China established the advantage and used a 30 to 17 run in the second quarter to open a big gap and finally cruised to victory, 84 to 70. To me, it was an easier than expected game process for Team China. There were several things that Team China did quite well. The Chinese side was very physical on the defensive side. They guarded aggressively against the shooters of the South Korean team. South Korea barely had open perimeter shots opportunities. China looked for as many transition chances as possible to attack the rim. China also moved the ball around quickly with a lot of baseline cuts. Overall, the Chinese players were more energetic and rebounded their well. On the other side, South Korea had too many sloppy passes, which led to some easy points for China. China next faces the Philippines, who knocked out Iran by one point. One thing China might need to work on is to reduce their fouls in their semifinal. Chain. Well,、um, what are the highlights, or what were the highlights from、uh, the medal events on the day today? Yeah, the Chinese athletes continued their medal hunt. First of all, China won a handful of gold medals in canoe sprints, including in the women's singles and doubles 200 meters, and the men's and women's team 500 meter sprints. Basically, Chinese athletes dominated those events and won by big margins. Team China's Yan Langyu also secured a men's trampoline gold medal. In the women's boxing 50 kilogram、uh, final, Wu Yu defeated a Thai opponent. Win the gold medal as well, Shane. Well, thank you very much for joining us this evening. That's、uh, Yang Guang reporting from the Hangzhou Asian Games, and the Hangzhou、uh, Olympic Sports Center Stadium has seen plenty of exciting athletics action、uh, during the Asian Games. Athletes have been full of praise for the venue due to the electric atmosphere it creates and the performance-enhancing facilities. Brandon Yates has more. The Hangzhou Olympic Sports Center Stadium, nicknamed the Big Lotus, is the main stadium for the Hangzhou Asian Games. The iconic 80,000-seater stadium on the Chiangtang Riverfront gets fans closer to the field and maximizes sightlines to the games. Philippine 110-meter hurdler John Tolentino says the stadium served the best game atmosphere he has ever seen. This is amazing. This is the best stadium 
I've ever been, ever been. That crowd is, is a thing, a different thing. Yeah, that's so loud. Meanwhile, to meet the high demand of pre-match warm-ups from athletes, the stadium also set up a warm-up zone of more than 3,000 square meters equipped with a 60-meter long track. Singaporean runner Ang Chen Xiang says it helped the athletes better prepare for the competitions. In the warm-up zone, what we really look for is space so that we can do our own thing um, and focus on our own preparation. And there's a lot of space. Each of us have our own country tent. And Hurdles, there's so many hurdles. We don't have to go and find hurdles or share hurdles. There's so many we can, starting blocks, there's so many we can take from. We don't have to worry about trying to uh, take a starting block and then next moment it's gone, someone took it away, you know? So that's great. We can do our full warm up with no worry and no disruption and no waiting. So that's perfect. To better accommodate the running events, the stadium had an extra running lane paved, creating more space for the athletes, especially in relay competitions. Italian technician Luigi Varela, who has three decades of experience in paving running tracks for sports venues across the globe, was in charge of installing the running lanes for the Big Lotus. The Italian said it was the best track he has paved. The track has also got positive feedback from the participating athletes. Bahrain's 4x400 meter mixed relay winning member Abbas Yusuf Abbas Ali says the track was easy to run on and brought out his best form. Yeah, the running lane helped me about when I switched to the lane one. That was quite good, you know. It was quite an advantage for me. Wonderful. Thank you, China. <laughs> The Big Lotus is the third largest stadium in China, following the Bird's Nest in Beijing and the Guangzhou Olympic Stadium. With the aim of hosting world-class sporting events, the Hangzhou Stadium also reduces carbon and material use. It uses 67% less steel than the Bird's Nest, making it both beautiful and sustainable. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Brandon Yates at the Hangzhou Asian Games. Coming up, former U.S. President Donald Trump makes an appearance in court. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. It's 11 minutes past the hour. Former U.S. President Donald Trump's appeared in court in New York for the start of a civil trial. He's accused of inflating his assets and net worth from 2011 to 2021 in order to obtain favorable bank loans and lower insurance premiums. New York Attorney General Letitia James says Trump's engaged in persistent and repeated fraud for years. And Trump's denied the allegations. William Denslow reports from outside the court in New York. The prosecution alleging that Donald Trump uh, and the Trump Organization repeatedly over a number of years inflated uh, the value of Donald Trump's assets for favorable terms uh, from lenders. They also used an example that Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former lawyer, was asked to inflate his assets. When it came to Donald Trump's defense team to present their opening statements, they refuted uh, Michael Cohen's claim, saying that he is a serial liar. There was also a little bit of uh, spicy uh, rhetoric from Donald Trump. He was unhappy that this is a case that's just being presided over by a judge. There is no jury. I was going to come out and say that, as you know, we're not entitled to a jury, which is pretty unusual in the United States of America. So. Uh, I think it's very unfair that I don't have a jury. Just before this trial began in earnest, the judge made a key determination, finding that Donald Trump was liable for fraud. But there are six key other issues that need to be resolved. Prosecutors have alleged that Donald Trump committed conspiracy, falsifying business records and insurance fraud. Donald Trump says that this is a witch hunt and he says that this is another example of the Department of Justice being weaponized to thwart and hamper his efforts to win the presidency. That was William Denslow reporting. Far-right U.S. Republican Representative Matt Gates has moved to oust fellow Republican Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Gates used the U.S. aid to Ukraine as one issue to blast McCarthy. But in the last vote on Ukraine, we had a majority of the majority vote no, and yet that was not something that the leadership honored. They used Democrat votes to send more money to Ukraine. And maybe the last straw for me was learning that Kevin McCarthy had created a secret side deal with President Biden on Ukraine 
while we were in the middle of this this government funding battle. A, a secret side deal on Ukraine is not what the American people want to see out of a Republican speech. The Republican representative from Florida has filed a resolution to remove McCarthy from his post. Uh, the rift among Republicans widened after McCarthy relied on Democrats to pass a spending bill to fund the government to avoid a shutdown. Foreign ministers from European Union countries have met in Kyiv to renew support for Ukraine. They promised a military aid package of over 5 billion U.S. dollars in their first meeting outside of EU borders. Megumi Lin has more from Kyiv. Diplomats from all 27 EU member states gathered in Kyiv on Monday to discuss ongoing support for Ukraine as the conflict with Russia enters its 20th month. In the meetings, the EU proposed a military aid package worth $5.3 billion next year. The EU's top diplomat, Josep Borrell, also announced plans to train 40,000 Ukrainian troops, including the training of fighter jet pilots. Ukraine's process of joining the bloc was also discussed. EU diplomats said to allow a country the size of Ukraine into the bloc would require a huge increase in budget and would be one of the biggest challenges for EU accession. The meetings come as Kiev has struggled to make significant gains in its counteroffensive, but is hoping to shore up more support from allies for continued military aid. That was Megumi Lim reporting. Are you listening to the Beijing Hour? Coming up, China and Brazil complete a transaction without using U.S. dollars. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. It's 15 minutes past the hour. China and Brazil have completed their first transaction using local currencies. An importer and a pulp maker settled their trade in renminbi and real through the Bank of China, Brazil. The two countries agreed to promote trade in local currencies during a visit by Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva earlier this year. The head of the International Monetary Fund is supporting quota reforms uh, within the financial institution that could give China more voting power. Kristalina Georgieva told the Financial Times that there's need to constantly change to reflect how the world economy is changing. The report said her remarks referred to China's 6% share of voting power at the IMF, even as it accounted for 18% of the global economy. Georgieva's call for a, a quota review comes as she warned of devastation if the IMF lacks the resources to help countries in need. Nighttime cycling is increasingly popular across China. The new trend is driven consumer spending in the sector, as enthusiasts invest in specialized equipment for their rides under the stars. Wang Zihang has more. As night falls, an increasing number of people are hopping on their bicycles. The new phenomenon has transformed the streets of Beijing into a dazzling spectacle. 32-year-old Lisa Jia has just begun her nighttime cycling adventures. She describes it as a liberating experience that provides both freedom and a chance to delve into her inner world. Riding at night feels different from riding during the day. It's mostly for commuting during the day. But when I ride at night, it's more about personal focus. I like to set my own goals, like enjoying the nighttime air and feeling relaxed. She also likes the cyclist-friendly environment in Beijing, including bicycle lanes, signals and painted buffer zones. To protect herself while cycling, Jia has bought a range of gear such as breathable clothing, helmets and gloves. Specialized is a well-known cycling brand that focuses on designing and manufacturing bicycles and cycling accessories. A company representative reveals that sales last year reached 90 million yuan, or around 14 million US dollars. Wang Wei notes that in their stores in Beijing, beginners usually spend a whopping 80,000 yuan on a bike and accompanying gear. Cycling can definitely lead to some significant spending. The main expense usually comes from buying cycling equipment and gear, which can be quite pricey. 
For example, a basic bicycle can cost around 10,000 yuan. If someone has a larger budget, they might choose a high-end and a pricier bike. And the costs go up when purchasing gear and accessories, easily surpassing 120,000 yuan. Wang also says they have established a bicycling club called Qi Yi to connect with customers and cycling enthusiasts. In recent years, we've been organizing more activities because there are more people interested in cycling. The demand has increased, and some people who can't ride during weekends choose to cycle on weekdays instead. Since they work during the day, they prefer riding at night. That's why we organize night rides two or three times a week. As club members engage in more activities, they not only make friends, but also recommend equipment to one another and organize post-ride gatherings for meals and more conversations. This type of consumption driven by outdoor sports hobbies represents a new trend in the Chinese consumer market. Professor Wei Xiang at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences explains. As an activity to explore cities, cycling drives an extensive chain of consumption with subsequent effects, such as the growth of the manufacturing industry. The demand for well-crafted bikes with advanced features motivates the industry to produce more high-quality products, and this particular group of consumers are willing to invest in them. According to market research firm iMedia Group, Chinese residents have been actively participating in nightlife outdoor sports activities this year, with four out of five people choosing to do so. This has played a significant role in boosting the nighttime economy. For the Beijing Hour, this is Wang Zihang. With more and more people embracing sports activities in China, the demand for sports therapy services has skyrocketed. Uh, private rehabilitation studios are now emerging in major cities, catering not only to professional athletes, but also to millions of sports enthusiasts. Jiaoying uh, has more. China's sports rehabilitation industry is experiencing rapid growth. Thanks to the increasing popularity of sports and fitness in the country, what was once a niche demand for professional athletes has now become an essential service for the general public. According to official statistics, over 400 million Chinese regularly participate in sports. The number is expected to reach 500 million by 2025 and 630 million by 2035. However, 10 to 20 percent of these sports enthusiasts may experience injuries, and public hospitals are struggling to keep up with demand. Private institutions are stepping in to cater to the growing need for sports rehabilitation services. Zheng Yi is a sports physical therapist. After graduating from Beijing Sports University, she worked with national team athletes and gained experience in public hospitals. Now she has chosen to continue her career at a private sports rehabilitation center in Beijing. We experience common problems such as chronic back pain, chronic neck and shoulder pain, or ankle sprains. Our first instinct may be to go to the hospital. However, hospitals may not be the best place to address these issues because they are often caused by a lack of physical activity. Specialized rehabilitation programs or exercise prescriptions are needed, and this can take a long time. Hospitals often don't have the time or resources to give each patient the attention they need, and this is where private physical therapists or studios can be very helpful. Well, this model is already common in some foreign countries, in China is still a relatively new market. There are currently around 36,000 qualified physical therapists in China. However, the number is low compared to other parts of the world. For every 100,000 people in China, there are fewer than 2.7 physical therapists available. In contrast, some European countries and the United States have 60 to 68 physical therapists per 100,000 people. This means that China's sports rehabilitation industry still lacks trained professionals to meet the growing demand. China's rehabilitation industry is still in its early stages compared to other countries, and it doesn't have a well-established education system. The sports rehabilitation major was only introduced in 2008. 
but more universities are now offering sports therapy programs. Many physical therapists, including some of my classmates, choose to pursue advanced education and training abroad, and then come back to China to help develop the rehabilitation industry. It will take some time, but I believe the industry will continue to grow and become more standardized. Cost is another challenge. According to Zheng Yi, sports rehabilitation is still too expensive in China for it to reach the lives of ordinary people and provide sustained service to them. Currently, the fees for rehabilitation facilities are quite high. A single hour can cost several hundred yuan or even up to 1,000 or 2,000 yuan, which is unaffordable for many people. This high cost is a significant obstacle to the promotion of sports rehabilitation in China. This is determined by the market. However, with the development of the Internet and artificial intelligence, many institutions are providing online services, making rehabilitation more accessible and affordable for ordinary people. At our rehabilitation center, we've developed our own app that uses advanced technology to precisely identify your rehabilitation movements and monitor their correctness. The rehabilitation program is customized by a physical therapist based on your specific needs and situation. By ensuring both quality and quantity, we can offer more people access to high-quality rehabilitation services. With the government's increasing focus on promoting sports and fitness, as well as the development of new technologies, the sports rehabilitation industry in China is poised for further expansion. This will not only provide essential services to those in need, but also promote a healthier and more active lifestyle for all. For the Beijing Hour, this is Zhao Ying. Tutorial videos are becoming a popular method for learning new skills. And with the prevalence of social media and online platforms, bloggers are leveraging this trend to share their knowledge and gain a loyal following. Liu Jiehang has the story. There are so many things you can learn from watching videos. Some tutorials guide you to install electronics or assemble furniture, while others show you techniques for applying makeup or speaking in public. A short video may seem easy to make, but actually requires a lot of thinking. Blogger Zhu Jing shares makeup tutorials on social media. She says the secret to making a great video is a well thought out plan. I would get the equipment ready, including taking out the makeup props that I need, setting up the camera, microphone, tripod, and lighting. I would also make a detailed script that covers the lines, scenes, shots, background music, and sound effects. She also says there are numerous approaches and styles to making videos, and they all learn from each other. I invite other influencers for collaborations to increase the exposure of my videos. Eye-catching captions, abstracts, and video covers are important too. I also try to make sure my content is relevant to current hot topics and give a lot of thought on video editing. Video editing should be one of the key procedures for creating high-quality tutorials. And if your production hits a bottleneck, there's another type of videos that might help. Lisa Su shares her experience with video editing and offers tips and tricks for vlog making. People are more likely to learn new things with small pieces of knowledge in their spare time. You can play the video and do other things at the same time. Also, tutorials are more visually engaging, offering a diverse range of content and formats, and you feel more connected with the person sharing their knowledge. As all kinds of tutorials become popular and attract tons of followers, more people are entering the industry. Lee believes this trend is having a positive impact on people's self-improvement journeys. Creating tutorial videos takes a lot of time and effort. Sharing things you know is a kind of output, but first you have to input. It drives bloggers to learn more so that they can share more. It's beneficial for both the learners and the bloggers themselves. According to research, 83% of people prefer to watch videos when accessing instructional or informational content, rather than text or audio-based formats. More than half of online shoppers say they use video to help make purchasing decisions. As people increasingly turn to videos when seeking answers to their questions, there's a growing need for bloggers to produce high-quality video content. For the Beijing Hour, 
This is Lu Jiaheng. At 28 past the hour, Beijing down to 15 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, sunny in 24. Chongqing's at 21 this evening, then a light rainfall in 24. It lasts at 10 degrees, then cloudy in 22. Hong Kong's 27 tonight. It'll be uh, cloudy and 32 degrees Celsius on Wednesday. That wraps up this special edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, travelers in China made nearly 400 million domestic trips in the first three days of the ongoing holiday period. And former U.S. President Donald Trump's appeared in a New York courtroom for the start of a civil trial against him. Coming up next, we'll continue the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series. Today we hear stories about how Xi Jinping tackled one problem after another to lead the Chinese people out of poverty. And we look at Xi Jinping's enthusiasm in promoting international exchanges and cooperation and better understanding his global vision and his perspectives on China's relationship with the rest of the world. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. German railway company Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, 你好,我的中文一点点. or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了,我是本地人. There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. At the 2017 BRICS Summit in the city of Xiamen, the BRICS leaders received an exquisite box of assorted Fujian tea as a gift. The varieties included Tie Guan Ying from Anxi, Dao Hongpao from Wuyi Mountain, and Jasmine tea from Fuzhou City. This was no regular box of tea. It tells the story of how lives of local tea farmers had changed with Xi Jinping's leadership when he worked in Fujian as a local official. Xi started working in Fujian in June of 1985 and stayed in the province for 17 years, holding various positions in different cities, including Xiamen, Ningde, and the provincial capital Fuzhou. When Xi first began his career in Fujian, the eastern part of the province was the most impoverished. Surrounded by mountains on three sides and facing the sea, Fujian enjoys a warm and humid climate with abundant rainfall, which is ideal for growing tea. In fact, the eastern part of the province was once a famous tea-producing region, with a history of tea planting spanning over 1,700 years. Many world-famous tea varieties such as Tanyang Gongfu black tea originated from right here. As time went by, however, the region lost its advantage in the tea industry. Locals whose livelihood depended on the mountains fell into extreme poverty. To find a path out of hardship for eastern Fujian, Xi Jinping visited all major tea plantations in the region in the next few years to find out the main reasons why local tea farmers couldn't make a decent living. He found that despite having favorable natural conditions, the local tea industry was too scattered and disorganized, where farmers each blew their own horn and sang their own tune. 
Xi Jinping planned a way out for the local tea industry through industrialization and economy of scale. More specifically, it meant planting in scale, cultivating high-quality products, grading tea leaves, and building brands. He also suggested setting up local administrations to facilitate step-by-step -step implementation. Following Xi's design, the region started to regain its advantage in the tea industry. With more jobs created, lives of impoverished people gradually improved along with the local economy. The local poverty alleviation effort thus evolved from a model of blood transfusion to one that stimulates blood-making abilities. People could now help themselves become rich. Xi Jinping believes that development is the fundamental approach to eradicating poverty, with industrial planning being one important aspect. He says poverty alleviation through industrial development is the most straightforward and effective way. By the end of 2020, policies regarding poverty alleviation through development of local industries reached 98% of impoverished households across the country, making it the most sustainable approach in tackling poverty in China. Developing local industries is one major scheme of targeted poverty alleviation put forward by Xi Jinping a strategy that requires customized development methods suitable to local conditions, targeted guidance for special groups of people, and appropriate allocation of resources to poverty-stricken regions. Other policies, such as resettlement and social collaboration, have also yielded impressive results. The last mile is always the hardest. The same is true for poverty alleviation. In face of the last mile, Xi Jinping advocated relocating people away from impossibly harsh natural conditions. In these areas and in other places frequently hit by natural disasters, building infrastructure for water, roads and electricity would be extremely costly. It's almost hopeless to speak of a life of prosperity if they stayed where they were. In such cases, the best way to help the people is through resettlement. When Xi Jinping was working in Fujian province, a group of people who had been living on wooden fishing boats caught his attention. These locals were known as gypsies on water and were considered a special impoverished group. These families had lived on wooden boats for generations. One fine day in late April of 1998, Xi Jinping visited Yang Yongxiong's home, a fishing boat moored off the waters of Xiapu County. Xi Jinping had to bend way down to go inside the boat's small cabin. Yang's father, who was nearly 80 years old, offered Xi a wooden pillow as a seat. The two started chatting. Lao Yang, how did you become a fisherman? And how are things going now? I've lived on this boat since as far as I can remember. Life used to be harder. I bought some land along the shores after 1949, which made life a lot easier. The government relocated fishermen ashore in the 1960s. Why didn't you go then? I was used to living on water. I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to make a living on land. What about now? Do you want to move ashore now? I've seen other people settle well on land. Some have found jobs, some are selling seafood. They're living a good life. I'd love to go now if I have the chance. That was a reenactment of the conversation based on published works. The boats that these fishermen called home were usually 7 to 8 meters long and less than 2 meters wide. These dingy and damp boats had neither electricity nor water and normally housed a family of several generations. After seeing these conditions, Xi Jinping couldn't wait to take actions. He led efforts to accelerate the relocation plan and urged local governments to take follow-up measures to help the newcomers on shore to earn a good living. 
In the following three years, roughly 20,000 boat dwellers in Fujian moved into new homes on land. They are grateful to Xi Jinping to this day. Chen Shoujang is one of them. The idea of relocating people living on boats came from Xi Jinping when he was working in Fujian. We were deeply touched that, as a provincial leader, he would come onto our small boats to chat with us. Jiang Chengcai feels the same way. We were all so excited the day we moved. We were fascinated by the light bulbs, and we couldn't fall asleep the whole night. We were incredibly excited. It felt like celebrating the Chinese New Year, but even more joyful. Happiness was knocking on our door. In the years that followed, Xi Jinping never forgot about the people who moved out of their boat homes, and he urged local governments to follow up on the life and work of these new village dwellers. In time, many of the people who relocated found work with a stable income in marine fishing, marine transportation, trade, or tourism. They were able to live and work on land and shake off poverty. By 2021, in Fujian's Shaqi village, which was the first such resettlement village from two decades ago, average annual per capita income for the villagers had increased about 27 times from 1998. Throughout history, there have always been imbalances in development between China's urban and rural areas and across regions. It has never been an easy task to lead the entire country to prosperity. Towards the goal of common prosperity, Xi Jinping has attached great importance to collaborative development between China's western and eastern regions. Mutual assistance between more developed and less developed regions, and he has encouraged people who became rich first to help others catch up. In 1996, Fujian launched a program of one-on-one support for the less developed Ningxia Hui Autonomous Region in northwest China. Xi Jinping led the program as the then Deputy Secretary of the CPC Fujian Provincial Committee. That year, Lin Zhanxi, a professor at Fujian Agriculture and Forestry University, successfully developed the Jingcao technology, a method of cultivating mushrooms on grass. The Jingcao technology enabled edible and medicinal mushrooms to grow on specific types of grass or herbal plants. And helped achieve recyclable production between plants, animals, and fungi. Using grass to grow edible mushrooms offered a new solution to eradicating poverty. The new technology attracted Xi's attention, as he had long been keeping an eye on poverty alleviation. Soon, Xi Jinping incorporated this new technology in the collaboration work between Fujian and Ningxia. He encouraged experts to travel to Ningxia to teach the locals and develop new types of edible mushrooms suitable to local conditions. Very soon, Jingcao mushroom cultivation became the cash cow industry for Ningxia, and thanks to the poverty alleviation programs, the provincial GDP expanded more than 16 times in 20 years. Incomes for both rural and urban residents increased nearly seven times. One-on-one support between Fujian and Ningxia became a vivid example of tackling poverty through cooperation and exploring common prosperity. What's more exciting was that, with promotion by Xi Jinping, the Jingcao technology not only reached other parts of China but went beyond borders to aid global efforts in poverty reduction. So far, the Jingcao technology has been applied in over 100 countries and regions around the world, creating hundreds of thousands of local jobs, helping people find a way out of poverty. In Papua New Guinea, the first country to benefit from this, the grass on which mushrooms can grow has become the grass of hope for the people. Actually, called my younger sister Jingcao. 
She's named after the technology to um, show the bond between my family and the Junkal technology. During the time I started till now, I have achieved a lot of things. My kids are in school, all their school fees are paid. I have a car, my house is built. In Fiji, people hail Jingtao mushroom cultivation as the new hope for agricultural island states. In Lesotho, people there wrote a song about it, which goes, Some say it's wild grass, some call it life. It's food, it's medicine, it's hope. This new method has also helped many young people find jobs in Rwanda. Lifting huge population out of poverty is one of the greatest testaments to Xi Jinping's capability in solving real-world issues. By the end of 2020, China had lifted all of its nearly 99 million impoverished rural population out of absolute poverty, winning the fight on schedule. This is CGTN Radio. Xi Jinping's global vision was already evident at the start of his political career. Back in the 1980s, Xi already took an active stance in bringing advanced technology and management expertise from abroad and in promoting international exchanges and cooperation. Xi said, we must broaden our vision to see further and aim higher. We should have more courage and ambition to learn from the experiences of others to improve ourselves. In 1985, Xi went abroad for the first time as a junior official in Zhending County in North China's Hebei province. He led an agricultural delegation from the provincial capital Shijiazhuang on a trip to the agricultural heartland of the United States the state of Iowa. Their goal was to study the local agricultural and livestock breeding technologies, explore new paths of agricultural development, and seek opportunities for international exchanges and cooperation. In just a few days, Xi's delegation visited 29 companies, farms, universities, scientific research institutes, and government departments and met with nearly 400 people from all walks of life. As a result, the delegation learned a lot to benefit agricultural research and production in Zhending. Since then, Xi Jinping has never stopped seeking opportunities for exchanges and cooperation from abroad. He's fully aware that only by deepening friendship and strengthening exchanges with the rest of the world could people from different countries cooperate, develop, and stand together to weather the storm of the times. In 1994, when serving as secretary of the CPC Fuzhou Municipal Committee, she successfully promoted the establishment of sister-city relationship between Fuzhou, the provincial capital of southeast China's Fujian province, and Tacoma in the state of Washington in the U.S., two port cities on two sides of the Pacific. One year earlier, Karen Vialli, then mayor of Tacoma, wrote a letter to the municipal government of Fuzhou in 1993 in which she expressed willingness to establish a sister-city relationship with Fuzhou. Tacoma is only the third largest city in Washington state, and its population of about 200,000 seemed rather small in relative terms. Some thought the disparities in size and population were too great for Fuzhou and Tacoma to become sister cities. Xi Jinping, however, said the advantages that Tacoma held should not be underestimated. Though Tacoma was small in size, it was much more globalized than Fuzhou. As a renowned seaport city, Tacoma could link Fuzhou with other developed areas in the U.S. In November of 1993, she traveled to Tacoma with a business delegation from Fujian to the U.S. After on-site research and face-to-face -face exchanges with local officials and business groups, 
She proposed that the two cities start by establishing a sister port relationship between the port of Tacoma and the port of Maui in Fuzhou. In November of 1994, one year after Xi's visit to Tacoma, a sister city relationship was formally established between Fuzhou and Tacoma, with support from both sides. Connie Bacon, then representative of the Tacoma mayor, flied to Fuzhou for the signing ceremony and spoke highly of Xi's global vision and active interaction with the outside world. In the following two decades, Fuzhou and Tacoma held frequent interactions and launched various exchanges and cooperation in trade, technology, culture, and education. The two cities realized mutual benefits and became role models of sister cities between China and the United States. In September 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping went back to Tacoma to visit his old friends during his state visit to the U.S. In the auditorium of Lincoln High School in Tacoma, students from both China and the U.S. sang in chorus the Chinese song called "In a Field of Hope" and also "What a Wonderful World" in English. The lyrics, "Our hometown is in a field of hope," echoed in the auditorium. While working as a leader in different posts. Xi Jinping has always incorporated global trends into the planning of local and national development. Over the years, he has been proactive in attracting high-quality foreign investment, advanced technologies, and management expertise. He also supported Chinese enterprises in conducting economic cooperation with other countries, to become part of the international supply chain and to actively expand global partnership. When Xi was governor of Fujian in 2000, Daimler Chrysler Group, one of the world's largest auto giants, expressed keen interest in investing in Fujian Province. However, the joint project with Fujian Motor Group stalled due to disputes regarding the number of shares each should hold. Hearing the news, Xi met in person with executives from Daimler Chrysler to express China's sincerity for cooperation and actively coordinated all parties to start preparation work, such as conducting feasibility studies. With his support, this joint project was successfully launched in October of 2007, which promoted the auto industry in Fujian from a regional power to a global player. Fujian Benz. Established under the project, became the first industrial enterprise in Fuzhou to pay over a billion yuan annually in taxes. For years, the company remained one of the major taxpayers in Fuzhou, making important contributions to the economic development of the entire Fujian province. Later, when serving as secretary of the CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee. She gave private enterprises strong support in their cooperation with foreign enterprises. Attracting foreign investment through private enterprises became a new breakthrough point for this province in East China. In November 2005, Xi Jinping learned that negotiations regarding a joint venture between Zhejiang-based Deli Xi Group and French firm Schneider Electric was slow in progress. In order to facilitate the approval process from the Ministry of Commerce, she gave instructions to officials at the provincial government to lend full support to the enterprises and even accompanied them to Beijing. Eventually, the joint project, which was the largest of its kind in Zhejiang at that time, obtained its permit. Also, thanks to Xi's efforts, Fortune Global 500 company Walmart settled in Zhejiang. Japan's Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corporation opened the first foreign-funded bank in the province. Following the trend, Zhejiang's scale of foreign investment utilization kept rising and became one of the best in the country. The amount of foreign investment in actual use soared from three billion U.S. dollars in 2002 when Xi Jinping first arrived in Zhejiang. To more than 10 billion dollars in 2007 when he left for a new post in Shanghai. 
Before 2002, it would take Zhejiang over two decades to accumulate such an amount of foreign investment. Apart from encouraging high-quality foreign investment, Xi Jinping also encouraged domestic enterprises to go global, making better use of both the domestic and overseas markets. This was also to foster new areas of economic growth and to build a global network of trade, investment, production, and services based in China. With China's accession to the WTO in 2001, the coastal province Zhejiang ushered in a new era of tremendous opportunities. As secretary of CPC Zhejiang Provincial Committee at that time. Xi Jinping encouraged local enterprises to seek development opportunities outside Zhejiang. He supported enterprises and products to go global to take root in the U.S. and European markets, as well as in closer ones in Japan and Southeast Asia, and to explore emerging markets like South America and Africa. That was to encourage local enterprises to participate in economic and technological cooperation and competition on larger scales and in wider fields. To ensure that products and enterprises in Zhejiang could go further, Xi paid numerous visits to experts and academicians at the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the Chinese Academy of Engineering in Beijing. And invited them to guide enterprises in making new breakthroughs in product upgrades, enterprise transformations, and increasing global competitiveness. Also, with Xi's support, the air route between Ningbo and Vladivostok opened in 2003, expanding the market in the Russia's Far East region. Since 2005, enterprises in Zhejiang grew their markets in Laos and then rapidly expanded to Thailand and other neighboring countries. These countries have now all become key participants in the Belt and Road Initiative. Over the years, in coastal provinces and cities that play an important role in China's opening up, like Fujian, Zhejiang, and Shanghai. Xi Jinping actively promoted the bringing in and going out strategies with a global perspective. His efforts to encourage wider and deeper opening up also helped to reshape the Chinese economy and facilitate its integration into the global economy. These efforts are reflections of China's broader opening up and also vivid demonstrations of Xi Jinping's global vision. In March of 2013, in his first overseas visit since taking office as the Chinese president, Xi Jinping proposed the building of a community with a shared future for mankind. It's a world where countries are linked with and dependent on one another at a level never seen before. Mankind living in the same global village within the same time and space where history and reality meet have increasingly emerged as a community with a shared future, in which everyone's interests are closely intertwined. Since then, more people in the world have been paying attention to how the Chinese leader will live up to his promise and lead China's increasing contribution to global development. In the ten years since, China proceeded with further opening up and high-quality development under Xi Jinping's leadership, and created many new opportunities in the world. From 2013 to 2021, the total volume of trade of goods between China and countries along the Belt and Road reached nearly 11 trillion U.S. dollars. And 161.3 billion dollars were directly invested into those countries. Economic and trade cooperation zones along the Belt and Road have experienced high-quality growth, and small projects with low investment have also been actively promoted. These efforts have brought tangible benefits to the people in these countries, increased job opportunities, and generated tax revenues for their governments. Which in turn supported and helped developing countries to speed up their own development. Under Xi's direct arrangement, the China International Import Expo has been held annually since 
with intended transaction volume totaling nearly 350 billion U.S. dollars in five years. Over 2,000 products made their debut at the events. The expo has now become a global public good and a platform for China to promote high-level opening up. The huge Chinese market has become a great opportunity for the rest of the world. Over the past 10 years, China's development has become even more closely linked with that of the world under Xi's leadership. Looking at Xi's commitment to China's opening up and international cooperation over the past decades, we may better understand why he considers it so important to seek development through opening up and build a bright future through cooperation. In the face of a changing and challenging world, Xi Jinping said China will continue to seek development through opening up, forge a future through cooperation. Promote an open world economy to boost common development of the world. This is China's commitment to being a responsible global player, and also Xi Jinping's sensibility to the well-being of people across the world.